Welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. For six magical years, we lived in Yarmouth Port in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Both my son Marcus and my daughter Anya were born there, and from the beginning, we canoed once or twice a week on Cape Cod Bay, which was just a few steps from our house. Our 17-foot green Mad River canoe was our gateway to the labyrinthian network of marshes, and when we were feeling especially brave, we canoed to Sandy Neck Beach, just a few miles of open water away. When we moved back to San Francisco, we left our precious canoe behind, and now each time our family sees someone with a canoe on the roof of their car, we get super nostalgic. So when Barry Nelson called me up to see if I wanted a canoe down the Feather River in Northern California, I didn't hesitate. Barry was the head of Save the Bay, he was the lead for the Natural Resources Defense Council on California water issues, and now he runs Western Water Strategies. Today's show is a companion to episode 28, Gone Fishing, where I found out that the main reason that our local salmon aren't doing well is because of the deteriorating health of California's river systems. So it's just gotten light. We're here in Berkeley at Barry's house. We're going to throw the canoe on the car and drive up to the Feather River. When did you get the canoe? Uh, That canoe was a wedding present from my parents. I I love the canoe. It's it's seen hundreds of miles on uh, rivers in California and around the West. So we're going up to the Feather. Where's the drop-in point? Uh, The drop-in point is right at the Feather River hatchery, uh, which is right below Oroville Dam. And then we're going to take out at... um, at a, a reservoir called the Thermolito Afterbay, which is the largest source of thermal pollution in the Feather River. It's hard to believe we're, we're in pretty urban California. And yet, in a couple of hours, you can be in, uh, you can be on a beautiful, relatively wild river. And then, as if by magic, we were at the Feather River. We're at the fish viewing platform that leads into the Feather River hatchery, and we're watching a couple of dozen uh, fall-run Chinook salmon as they swim up to the hatchery. The big fish we're looking at are probably 30, 35 pounds. A lot of, yeah, they're swimming against the, the current. It's pretty ferocious current. Right. These, these fish would normally have spawned in this stretch of the river and upstream into, uh, into the foothills. So what's the purpose of having a hatchery? Uh, the hatchery is designed to replace the lost habitat upstream. Uh, California's lost about 90% of its salmon spawning habitat, and we lost it because we built a, a, a wall of dams on virtually every one of California's major salmon rivers, and the hatcheries are designed to replace the spawning habitat that used to exist upstream. So they swim right into the fish hatchery. And then what happens? They cut them open, they pull the eggs out, and then they fertilize those eggs and raise them until they're a couple inches long, and they they release them back into the river. And so this hatchery is designed to release about six to eight million baby fish every spring of these fish, um, the fall-run salmon, and about three million spring-run salmon babies every year. And, And if we're lucky, and in California we're never lucky, um, when it comes to salmon, up, up to 1% of those fish come back. That's your goal. 1% is a decent return. And what percentage of all the eggs hatched 
come from these hatcheries? On this river, uh, roughly 90% are salmon raised by the hatchery. About roughly 10% are actually wild fish that spawn in the wild. Cool. Let's go and put the boat in the water. Can you canoe on a little boat built for two? We canoed down the glassy river with cottonwood trees on the banks and hundreds of slow-moving salmon swimming under our boat, all looking for a place to spawn. After a few miles, we meet up with Dave Steindorf. Dave is the stewardship director of American Whitewater, founded in 1954 with a mission to conserve and restore America's whitewater resources and to enhance opportunities to enjoy them safely. Dave was introduced to rivers at the age of seven when his father put a fly rod into his hands and learning to kayak later was a natural progression. I start by asking Dave why it's so hard to find a place to launch our canoe onto the river. Access is really key because if you can't get to the river, you can't enjoy it. And many of our rivers are locked up via private property or other just water infrastructure that keep people away from away from um, rivers out there. And so uh, I think what you paddled today, you probably clambered down some rocks up at the top and dragged your boat down. It wasn't particularly easy. So this river um, is diverted in order to power um, a hydroelectric project for electricity. I mean, the Feather River is probably one of the hardest working, if not hardest working rivers in California. You know, starting clear up at the in the Sierras and actually in, in the Cascades below Mount Lassen, you know, through Lake Almanor and then comes down through PG&E's Stairway of Power where they can effectively put the entire contents of the Feather River in a pipe from Lake Almanor all the way down to Lake Oroville. And then it goes into Lake Oroville where it's stored and then it goes down to the Delta and gets pumped out and goes all the way to Southern California. So it's, it's pretty crazy when you think about how these uh, little water molecules start their lives and then go through this entire system. Uh, But to be clear, California does not exist in its current form without this river. I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. I remember crossing the Feather River at Belden. Mm -hmm. I think it's still running pretty free there. The Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, which turns 50 this year, was set up as a, a counterbalance to the dam building of that era in the, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it said that, you know, there are special rivers out there that should be protected. And uh, by providing that designation, it provides that protection in, in perpetuity from dam building or other things that can uh, degrade those, those river resources. Uh, the Middle Fork Feather uh, was one of the original eight rivers selected um, to be a part of that system. Uh, just an amazing river, you know, granite aprons that come off of one side all the way across the riverbed all the way up the other side i mean it's it's yosemite spectacular up there we had a a river festival just at the end of september up there this year where we had almost two thousand people up there and not just from across california across the west but we had people actually coming from around the world for that river uh festival because they realized it is such a spectacular resource what percentage of our electricity comes from hydroelectric dams so we get about uh about 15 to 18 percent of our uh, power from hydroelectricity. In California, there's a bigger and bigger percentage that's coming from renewable energy resources, wind and solar, etc. And interestingly, that's making some hydroelectric facilities uh, somewhat obsolete. Virtually all of California's major rivers are completely dominated by these types of hydropower projects. Driving through Oroville, I got the impression that the town's really struggling economically. 
Oroville Dam is the tallest dam in the United States. Um, and the city of Oroville that sits below that is actually one of the poorest communities in California. So here you have this project whose economic benefits are literally in the billions of dollars per year, but those benefits are not bestowed upon the community where this project resides. If you drive through downtown Oroville, um, you wouldn't even know that there's a river there because there's a great big giant levee that separates the, the town from the river. And if you could sit in downtown Orville and have your cup of coffee or be on a deck and have a burger and a beer and look at the river, that would be a game changer for that community. And that's something that really needs to happen. Nationally, what are you seeing in terms of these incredible resources, the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic River Protection Act? How are we doing as a country? I often tell people that 50 years ago, Congress did something truly amazing. They passed a piece of bipartisan legislation, you know, just full stop. The only piece of conservation leg legislation to come out of this Congress was designating a wild and scenic river in Montana. You know, who knew? Even with all the divides that we have out there, rivers are a place where we can come together and, and realize that these are important resources. They're worth protecting. You're right. I mean, against the backdrop of political gridlock, rivers do bring people together. Believe it or not, there are some opportunities out there um, in California for removing some dams and providing that access to those upper watersheds. I mean, the Klamath Dam removal seems pretty exciting, and it's going to happen in the next few years. Yeah. No, Klamath is, is really going to be amazing when that, when that finally comes out. That project, you know, it's often touted as the largest uh, dam removal in history, which that is true. I prefer to describe it as the removal of the stupidest project ever built. And that's really what we're looking at with these dam removal projects. We're taking out projects that really never should have built in the first place. And I say that in relation to Klamath because any one of the powerhouses up on the Feather River produces more power than all five of those Klamath dams combined. And yet it decimated the third largest salmon run on the West Coast. So clearly the cost-benefit ratio was not in place when that project was built. And we're just getting around to um, fixing that mistake. One of the cool things about your whole organization is that your members are also citizen scientists. Most of our uh, members are, are whitewater paddlers. So they could be rafters, canoeists, um, kayakers, uh, more and more stand, people do stand-up paddleboard. Typically, um, our constituents are the only people that see virtually every river system in California top to bottom every year. That's pretty remarkable, and it gives you a lot of first-hand knowledge. It's really powerful. As Barry and I head down the river, we encounter Jim, who's wading waist-deep with a shovel in his hand. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. So what are you, what are you looking for? I'm looking for old coins, diamonds, and gold. And have you found any? All of the above. How do you find them? Uh, just uh, take a shovel and start emptying out a crevice or two. Because as that water come through here during the flood stage, it deposited so much of the existing gold in a lot of the crevices. So is some of the gold that you're finding from the gold rush? Well, I mean, all of the gold's from the gold rush, pretty much. And what about the diamonds, though? Uh, diamonds, um, I was fortunate enough one time to uh, acquire a 1933, 34, and 35 uh, county assessor's books, all hand-ledgered, um, everything from anything and everything to build this town. They also gave exact coordinates to several mines. So thank God for a little TomTom -tom and GPS and... I found a few mines and started checking 
around their tailings and sure enough come up with some industrial grade diamonds. Nice. Well, good luck for the rest of your day. Hey, you guys have okay. a good trip. We paddle for a few more miles and then bring the canoe ashore and have lunch. It's been an amazing morning. I, I love canoeing. It is absolutely amazing. We all live such stressful lives, and the world slows down when you come out and spend a few hours floating down a river. When did you first start canoeing in your life, Barry? I don't remember when I didn't. My family has been hanging out on the, the lower Russian River f since my great-grandfather won a poker game in 1910 and won a little cabin. And since then, my family has been paddling on the lower Russian River on real lovely flat water. Um, and I grew up doing that. There's something so peaceful. I mean, it's like unlike other sports where you've got to, you know, get dressed up in special equipment and, you know, do all this stuff. You're just floating. Yeah, you just float down these rivers. You know, a lot of outdoor sports require a lot of fancy gear. For canoeing, you need paddles, a canoe, a life jacket, and off you go. Like so many people in California seem to only want to do sports that involve spandex. <laughs> this is this is true. And uh, California has California. The middle of California has a couple of dozen beautiful rivers like this that are just delightful to float down. Did you expect to see gold miners on the river? You know, these rivers are valued and used by the communities that that surround them. So. Um, you see people poking around the banks of rivers all the time doing interesting things. There's a big history with the gold rush here, though. The, the very rocks that we're sitting on have been turned over numerous times. Dredge gold mining started right around 1900, um, and we built these enormous floating factories that would literally chew their way through these, these alluvial plains that surround Central Valley rivers and wash all of the sediment out of them at trying to get at the gold that is in that in that gravel and what they left behind were tens of thousands of acres of what they call what are called mine tailings it's basically piles of gravel and as we canoe down the river you can still see some of those piles of gravel instead of healthy habitat or productive farmland the last gold dredge in california stopped working in 1962 from about 1900 to 1960 um, we did enormous damage to some of these rivers. And the good news is that we actually now have a chance to repair some of that damage. I got the biggest rush of the day like 10 minutes ago when these two uh, mating spawning salmon jumped up. They must have been like 25-pound salmon and just splashed right in front of us as we were going through some ripples. So it's pretty magical. You were saying that they need gravel. You can see the floor of the river really clearly. Um, but there's not a lot of gravel in some places. But as you look on the banks of the river, there's a ridiculous amount of gravel. Right. There's a pretty obvious solution there. Uh, the dam upstream captures all of the gravel that naturally comes down the Feather River watershed. And it means if you don't do something to augment that gravel, the river will eventually scour out all that gravel. And what we're left with are cobbles that are from the size of your fist to the size of your head. That's lousy spawning habitat. They need smaller grain that they can move aside, lay their eggs, and then rebury their eggs with that same gravel. In this stretch of the river, ironically, if you move some of that gravel in the river, it's beneficial for salmon in two ways. First, you're recreating spawning habitat so that the gravel is of a size that salmon can use to spawn. But second, if you recarve some of these 
random hills of gravel around us, you can basically recreate floodplains that'll work as natural floodplains. So it's, it's a great way to reduce flood risk and it's a great way to help restore salmon populations. So why is the Feather River, just in terms of all the rivers in California, why is it an important one? Well, the, 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 the Feather is traditionally one of California's biggest salmon-producing rivers, and right now it's feasters famine. We'll occasionally get a good year. That almost always happens right after a big flood. Uh, that's when salmon have the flow conditions and the food they need to survive. Uh, but then we'll wind up in a just a, a year, a few years later, when that population will crash. We have turned the hydrograph of these rivers upside down. We used to see high flows in the, in the winter and the spring when it's raining and the snow melts, and now we see high flows in the summer when we release water for irrigation. And that has really wreaked havoc on our salmon populations. That's kind of shocking, Barry, that, that the time that the water comes isn't the natural cycle. I mean, I think we imagine, as we do with nature, that it's like a wilderness, that these rivers really are untouched, and yet they're very engineered. It's a very managed system. When the water goes on and off is, is not when nature intends it. These are highly managed, highly engineered systems, and a lot of what we're learning is how we can reverse that um, in ways that still allow us to meet our needs, but, uh, but that also allow us to restore healthy environments, restore healthy salmon runs, and maintain a salmon fishing industry. And this river is a great example of ways we can do that. We can restore salmon in ways that are broadly supported, cost-effective, um, keep our salmon uh, runs going, keep our salmon fishing communities going, and will help strengthen the economies of these local communities that, that would really benefit from a really thriving river. There's lots of great ideas. There's no shortage of plans that are cost-effective. So why, is, why isn't stuff happening? Politicians have limited attention spans, and there are uh, a number of remarkably promising restoration projects just on this river alone uh, that have kind of been ignored. There are a number of them that have been stalled for more than a decade, where despite the fact that folks have agreed to pay for them, that there's remarkably broad support for some of these restoration projects, and this could be a world-class salmon restoration program, um, some of those restoration projects have just been sitting on the drawing boards for a decade and nothing has happened. I thought the answer to that question, Barry, would be, well, you know, there's gridlock in Sacramento, no one can agree on it, or they have agreed to it, but no one could come up with the money. In this case, they've both agreed and come up with the money, and yet nothing's happened. Oh, that's a hard question to answer. I think that long sigh is a sign that I should move on and find more uplifting issues to talk about. So tell us about the dead fish. So yeah. I noticed, um, and you were kind of telling me, so some have white splotches on them, some are completely black. Like, what, what's happening to them? And some of them get covered with this awful green fungus. Right. Mother Nature's designed salmon to swim upstream, spawn, and die. And that, that's actually important for a couple of reasons. The reason they do that is because their bodies really change when they enter fresh water. They go from looking like polished stainless steel to being dark, almost black, almost a reddish black. And they lose their, their hooks, their, their jaws get hooked. Um, they lose the slime that protects their, their skin, their scales out in the ocean, and that makes them vulnerable to fungal infection. Um, but these fish are dying. These fish will spawn, and then quite soon after they spawn, they'll die. Every fish 
will leave 10 to 30 pounds of nutrients up here in these rivers. And as we paddle down the river today, you can see how that supports the, the, the web of life all around us. It was amazing to see just how many of them are floating dead by. I, I would have been shocked if I wasn't with you. I would have thought like there was some kind of hideous die-off, but that's the natural cycle. You know, it, and it's, it's one of those natural cycles. So a salmon's job biologically is to swim out in the ocean, collect an enormous amount of ocean nutrients, and then swim upstream into the rivers they were born in, spawn, and, and then leave those nutrients up in that river. The salmon get eaten by bugs, which get eaten by fish, which get eaten by birds, which get eaten by a hawk, and eventually those nutrients find their way throughout the entire ecosystem. If you look at the the pine needles on a pine tree in a salmon river, you can actually test the nitrogen in that pine needle and find out how much of that nitrogen came from the ocean because of the salmon run. And bizarrely, we're very far from the ocean, but because of all the salmon and their rotting, it actually smells a lot like the ocean. It does smell like the ocean here. That's one of the uh, uh, advantages to a salmon river when the salmon are spawning. Um, those, all those ocean nutrients... Um, are released. So does the ocean actually just smell like salmon? Maybe that's it. Maybe the ocean just smells like salmon and that's the answer. Most people wouldn't think that temperature could be pollution, but salmon need like what what temperature water do they like to spawn in and what happens if the temperature's too high? The magic number for salmon is 56 degrees. Above 56 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, salmon eggs are just cooked as they're lying in the gravel. So salmon rivers have to be below 56 degrees. And here in what's called the low flow channel of the, of the feather, the water is reasonably cold, but it's called the low flow channel because most of the water from the river is run through a parallel, basically a parallel river, a parallel channel that runs that water through a powerhouse and then it runs it through an enormous flat reservoir called the Thermolito After Bay. Remarkably, Thermolito After Bay is named after the town that is at the bottom of Thermolito After Bay. There used to be a town that's now underwater. The problem is it's an enormous, flat, shallow bowl sitting in the middle of the Central Valley, which is a hot place. So the water could come out of the, the, uh, the, the dam, the Oroville Dam at 50 degrees and come out a week later of, of the Thermolito After Bay at 61 degrees. Um, and because of that, the water downstream of where we're going to finish today is lethally hot for salmon. If salmon spawn in that reach, their eggs are just cooked and die. So if we re-engineer Thermolito After Bay, which is an easy, cheap thing to do, uh, we can basically double the natural spawning habitat in this river. There's no opposition. There's funding for it. It's just been sitting on the drawing boards for 12 years. Let's get it off the drawing boards. But before we do that, let's get back in the canoe. I can tell you, uh, you can tell you paddle. When you, uh, when you um, paddle a canoe and you get in touch with that canoe, you can feel the stroke of the other person in the canoe tugging that canoe forward. So I can tell how strong you're paddling. You're actually working when we're out there. And now word from our sponsor, Fully. I, I can't have you driving down the road in a man. skyjack drinking beer. Why don't, you, why don't you come on down and talk to me here for a minute? Let's figure this oh, out. Man, I gotta get back to work. No, nah, just come on down. We'll get this figured out and we'll oh, get you man. back to work. No. Steve, come on down. No. Steve, come on no, down. Come get me. How about that? I'll tell you what, Steve. We can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. 
Come on up. The buddy. hard way on the way to jail, we're gonna stop by the hospital. Oh, maybe I'll come down. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll come down. Maybe I won't. I know my rights. Dang it, dude. It's just a fucking scissor lift, man. The moment I first saw the video of Steve attempting a getaway on a scissor lift was the moment I knew I needed a Jarvis stand-up desk. With a push of a button, I could make my desk higher or lower and immediately regain control over my life. Just like the scissor lift, with the Jarvis desk, I could get away from the mundane world of sitting. My head is now fully in the clouds as I work standing up, and the Jarvis standing desk is built to be so strong that I can actually sit on the desk and have it lift me into the air, which is the closest that many of us will ever get to levitation. But don't be fooled. Just because you don't operate a scissor lift doesn't mean your office environment won't cause you a visit to the emergency room. Sitting in the same position for an extended period of time raises your risk of heart disease, diabetes, stroke, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol, as well as bad posture and chronic pain. Humans were designed to stand up and move, and Fully wants to change the way you feel at work by supporting a more active lifestyle. Fully keeps your body moving and your energy flowing. I went to fully.com slash earth to get my Jarvis stand-up desk, and I've never looked back. Check out their array of affordable and eco-friendly stand-up desks, as well as active sitting chairs. It's just a smarter, healthier, and more comfortable way to work. You move more fully, you engage more fully, so you show up more fully for yourself, the people around you, and the world. Go to fully.com slash earth today. I doubt Steve would have had to resort to driving a scissor lift under the influence if he'd visited fully.com slash earth first. I love my desk, and I know you will too. And now back to this week's episode, Canoeing Down the Feather River, which next time I'll have to try on a stand-up paddleboard. We paddle on for a few more tranquil miles. Barry does an amazing job of navigating a small set of rapids, and we arrive at a huge $22 million flood mitigation project. We're met on the riverbanks by Mike Amina, who is the executive director of the Sutter Butte Flood Control Agency, and by Kevin Barker, who is the assistant resident engineer for WSP, who are the construction managers for the Oroville Wildlife Area Flood Reduction Project. Mike, where are we right now? We're on the west bank of the Feather River, just below the Oroville Dam complex. It was on the news. Tell us what happened. So in 2017 was a big water year, uh, actually arguably the biggest water year, and the service spillway for Oroville Dam uh, suffered a bunch of damage. When that spillway was shut down, there's a second spillway, the emergency spillway, which was in danger of overtopping. It eventually overtopped. There was a, nearly 200,000 people downstream of Oroville Dam that evacuated. And people were really nervous. It could have been very, very bad. The original alarm that went out when this water came up and a very quick decision was made at the dam to evacuate, it wasn't well thought out. So you can imagine what this place looked like. Highway 99 to the south of us was a parking lot. It was a pretty panicked scene. The dam made national news, but sort of the dirty little secret is that 
a lot of these levees that had not been improved yet. And so while there was this sort of a t national attention that was paid to the dam and to the evacuation, engineers on these levees, these sort of innocuous looking piles of dirt on the banks of the river, the engineers on the ground were more worried about sort of a mundane levee failure just due to high water. These levees were constructed by pioneer farmers 150 years ago. You have an opportunity to think about redesigning it, making it more secure from a flooding perspective. How does that also help the environment? There is a need for shallow habitat for out, outgoing salmon. And there's not a whole lot of areas on the Feather River. And so if you, when you paddle, I don't know if you're paddling downstream, but you'll see uh, the beginnings of a low-level outlet construction that will allow a large area, up to about 850 acres, that will allow the river to get back into what it normally flooded to provide the kind of habitat that fish like and these young salmon can go in there away from predators. Kevin, so you're managing that. This is a pretty cool project. The Feather River is pretty wonderful, especially when you get to see it as much as we do up here. Um, it's very peaceful. Uh, you know, hearing the river um, rush against the different berms and um, a lot of the rock um, sort of environment out here and getting to see the fish swim around is um, it's pretty nice, especially in the morning as the sun's coming up. This has been moved a lot. Hopefully you, you're the last guys to move it. It's, it's definitely been moved a lot and big dredge boats that would come down the Feather River looking for gold and spinning out all this rock out the side. And, you know, now standing here all these years later, getting to see all these different rock piles and you just think about the history that, you know, went through this um, area. What makes this particular project you're working on unique? As the uh, water recedes from that high water event, they'll be able to escape out through that box culvert area and thus mitigating the uh, stranding issue. So right now we're at the top of the, uh, an overlook where we can see the flood control measure. It looks like you're building the National Mall in Washington, D.C. So essentially it's um, these wire baskets um, and when we're doing, we're laying them out on this portion of the berm that we've excavated and filling them, backfilling them with rock. And so they act as a form of um, rock slope protection, erosion protection, as well as um, an area for the water to uh, flow through. So Mike, how's this gonna help the fish? There's a big bass pond located uh, a ways off in the distance. And that bass pond, of course, the bass are, they like to eat young salmon. And there's a, that's an area where salmon can get stranded. And so we're constructing a large berm to set up a big barrier between where the young salmon are headed out to the ocean, separate them from a predatory fish. I think we've got to get back to the canoe. I mean, Barry's in sandals. We've been hiking around here. You're doing a good job. I've been hiking in these sandals for a lot of, a lot of years. I'm all out of answers, trying to learn your harmony. I need a place to run for cover, a place I won't be seen. The river aches from this drought she's under. That was Amber Cross singing a song she wrote called San Joaquin. Back on the river, Barry and I on the last leg of our journey. So Barry, it got cold quickly. It, 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 it does that when uh, fall approaches on the river. I mean, but it's really cold. It is, it, is now, it is now chilly out here. 
So talking of coal, we're talking to Dave um, from American Whitewater about the Thermalita After Bay and how all this hot water, and you and I were talking about this at lunch, all this hot water is actually preventing salmon from spawning on the lower parts of the Feather River. Like, can't, I thought this could be solved. This is an easy fix. Some water pro- problems in California are hard. This one's easy. All you need to do is to, is to ast- install a bypass so that you move the cold water around that, that big, flat, hot afterbay and move that cold water right back into the river. It's an easy thing to do. What will it take to make this project so that we can double the amount of spawning habitat on the Feather River? The big change that creates an opportunity there is the fact that the state of California just, uh, just uh, uh, elected a new governor deeply interested in environmental issues and new ideas to solve problems. So 10 years from now, the project could have been done. And what would we see in the river? Just we'd be able to canoe further down the river and see more spawning habitat? Right. We saw spawning salmon for about eight miles. And uh, and there aren't many salmon that spawn downstream from where we took our canoe out. Uh, and if that after bay is fixed, we could go another dozen miles downstream and see um, more than that many salmon again. If the temperature was cooler, would it mean that less fish ended up in the hatchery? Oh, absolutely. Everyone's goal is for us to have healthy rivers, healthy salmon runs, and that means more wild fish and being less reliant on on hatcheries. And this is how you do it. You restore healthy rivers by giving them enough, enough, uh, enough habitat, enough flow, and, and temperatures that they can literally survive in. So Barry, one of my pet peeves is like, when we flush the toilet, like that, that water is potable water that then is just completely wasted. And at the same time, we're saying fish don't have enough water. Like there must be a better way of thinking about this whole system. And, and, and there's a great example on the feather where people are really rethinking how we use water. Uh, there's an agency in Southern California, the Inland Empire Utilities Agency, that has said to the state, if you fund this project, we'll build a new recycling project, storing that water underground, and we'll trade that water for water from the Feather River. So Southern California would take the recycled water and the water that they're currently using, some of it, would stay in the Feather River and be used by fish and be used when they're most vulnerable in the springs of dry years when conditions in the Feather River are at their worst. So rather than that wasting that water, they recycle it, they use it for different things, and they trade it for all the way up north to be released at the proper time when the salmon need it. This would help restore some of that equilibrium. And the result is really remarkable. You've got a more reliable water supply for Southern California from this project and new water supply to protect fish in the Feather River, and nobody loses any water. California's got an enormously complicated water project and water system, and we're just really learning how to rethink that system so that it works better for fish and people. In Israel, they use 80% of their wastewater as recycled. They said the next largest country was Spain, which is 40 like, what is California using? It's like in the single digits. We reuse a tiny amount of our water. If we capture that water and reuse it, it's like building another massive water project in California. And we do that by reducing waste, not by building more dams. So what's the state's goal in terms of recycled water or water? It's to, to recycle um, uh, and capture in stormwater uh, almost 10% of what the state uses av- on, on average. Which just thinking about it isn't that ambitious goal. You know, California just passed 100% renewable energy by 2045. We've got cap and trade. You know, you've got a lot on the energy side of the house. If someone said to you, Barry, you know what? We're going to have this ambitious goal. We're going to recycle 10%. 
I mean, the state has a 75% recycling goal for municipal solid waste. How come it only has a 10%? It just seems very low. California, water has a long, complicated history. It's also very emotional. People don't get emotionally invested in, in renewable energy, but you talk about water and their face turns red and they... They just feel very personally vested. Water is not just something we drink. It's not just something we irrigate with. Water, especially in the West, it has historical significance. It's culturally important. Uh, water and water projects have tremendous importance to people in California uh, and in the West. And I think that's just not true with energy and your local natural gas power plant. This is a fun day out on the river. Where are you going to go canoing next? I'm hoping to go sea kayaking in Scotland. That would be cool. And also cold. Thanks to Barry Nelson, Dave Steindorf, Mike Inamine, Kevin Barker, and Jim the Goldminer for a fantastic canoe trip down the Feather River. When Congress passed the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act 50 years ago, the stretch of the Feather River that we canoe today had been destroyed by dredge gold mining that was only banned six years before President Lyndon B. Johnson signed this new river protection law. Just like then, today rivers remain an issue where we can find bipartisan support. Mike, Kevin, and many others are directly engaged in reshaping the health of the river so that salmon can once again thrive, and in the process, towns like Oroville can reimagine their futures. Next week, Brenna Sheldon and I meet up with Tim Anderson, the inventor of 3D printing and a reuse superhero. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. A big thanks to sound engineer Will Wilkins, who's kindly helping out while Rob Spate is sipping pina coladas while on vacation in Mexico. Producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and for me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a great week and canoe if you can. <laughs>